the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Celebrating every colour of the rainbow. I often say to people that actually the hardest part of transition is making the decision to just go for it. It's making that decision because we could otherwise spend our lives humming up the pros and cons and saying, oh, I don't know, shall I do it? Can I do it? Yes, I can do it. Oh, no, but what about, you know, what if, what if? So and I had spent a number of years really going around in circles, wondering whether I could, you know, at, at risk was my acting career. I always came back to the idea of what is life for? It's to be happy. What's the meaning of of everything? And it was really to feel that I I really had no choice. The hardest life was my inauthentic pre-transitional life. And then after after it, everything just got got easier. Hello, I'm Matt Cain and welcome to Matt Cain Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. That was trans actor, activist and all-round icon Rebecca Root. She starred in the BBC sitcom Boy Meets Girl, plus has had roles in TV series The Queen's Gambit and Sex Education and films such as The Danish Girl. And she's just been on stage in the touring version of the National Theatre's hit play The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Stay right there because I'll be speaking to Rebecca in just a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I am meeting Rebecca Root. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me in, Matt. It's lovely to see you. You too. Now, you've come all the way from the seaside today. You have moved out of the city to the coast. I have. I escaped London. And, uh, yeah, we moved down to the south coast. And, boy, it was it was hard to, to, to leave today. It was hard to come back up to come back up to the big smoke on one of the hottest days of the year is that because you love it so much yeah i mean it's just another pace of life i mean i've just had a a, as you say like a a busy touring schedule on curious incident and the last couple of weeks i've just been recovering and just spending time at home catching up with my beautiful partner b the weather's turned for us and we bought a kayak and we've just been out on the sea and the rivers and we've been running along the seafront. It's just been bliss. It's bliss, you know. I can't sell it enough. And I better not tell you exactly where we live because otherwise everybody will be there <laughs> and uh, prices out of the area. I'll be there. It's sounding <laughs> great already. And so you're not basically a city girl at heart, you don't think? Well, do you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in uh, Woking, which is, uh, you know, a little suburban town half an hour from London. You may know it in Surrey. And um, and that was sort of, yeah, very suburban, but with a bit of countryside nearby. But then when I was 11, we moved to the Cotswolds, ah, super country-ish. Yeah. And I always say the countryside is wasted on teenagers and grown-ups. And, you know, at sort of 11, it was kind of fun because you could go out on your bike rides and things like that. But then the moment... I mean, I had a complicated adolescence anyway, but I'm sure we'll get on to that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you're sort of you're five miles from the nearest town, 10 miles from the, yeah, 15 miles yeah. from the nearest city, it, the countryside is 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 somewhat uh, limiting. So I couldn't wait to come to London to go to drama school when I was 18. And and I lived in London very happily, just down the road from your, you yourself. You um, In North London uh, for what almost 30, over 30 years, over 30 years. But there, there just 
came a time in my life I was still renting. I was in a flat share in my 50s, in yeah. a flat share. And B, my partner and I just thought, well, how are we ever going to get our own place? Um, we've got to take the plunge so- somehow. B's a Londoner herself. And um, so it was a big wrench for her to leave London. But to be honest, I, I love London. I do, genuinely. But when you have the sort of the fresh air, the horizon of the sea. The and kayak. The kayak. It's, you know, it's a no-brainer, really. And it's only an hour and a half away. Okay, brilliant. Right, so you mentioned Woking. I want to go right back to the beginning. Could you, before we get to your complicated adolescence, <laughs> could you describe your upbringing? Am I right in thinking it was an artistic household? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, my mum... You know, she's, she's still alive, but certainly when she was younger, she was a very keen amateur operatic singer. So she always did musicals in the nearby sort of towns. And um, both she and dad were churchgoers, so they were always part of the choir. And there was always music around the house. Um, you know, my dad is uh, he's still alive as well. He could have gone to music college. He could have been a, um, an organist or a composer, but he never really f- realised that potential. I think things were different for artistic people in the you know yeah, the 50s and yeah. 60s. The, the, the pressure was much stronger to get a, a regular job. Dad ended up working in a bank. Mum ended up with a variety of sort of part-time jobs to keep the money coming in. But neither of them really professionally fulfilled their artistic potential, but they, they instilled in me... Um, a sense of, you know, uh, go get them and follow your dreams. And they encouraged, they always encouraged me um, to to pursue my, my dream of being an actor. And, you know, I'm very lucky for that because even today a lot of people have parents who say, I, yeah. I don't think you should try that career. It's a very erratic pathway. And possibly um, more, it's possibly going back to what it had been now yeah. because things are more uncertain economically yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah. And... Am I right in thinking you had two sisters? Yeah, I've got two sisters, yes. So, uh, one younger, one older. Oh, right in the middle, like yeah, me. Yeah, right in the middle, yes. Best place yes, to be. Yeah, I'm the sandwich filling. <laughs> <laughs> so, even though you were obviously misassigned male at birth, do you think having two sisters living with you led you to understand that you were in the wrong gender earlier? Um... That's difficult. I mean, my younger sister is my junior by some eight years, so she was really only a wee kid when when I was growing up. My older sister's uh, older by three and a half years, and I always looked up to her, not just because she's older than me, but because, you know, she had quote-unquote legitimate access to all the things that I wanted. So it was her dolls, her toys, her dresses, her makeup box, you know, all the kind of the comics, all everything that she had, I wanted. And bless my parents, I love them dearly, but they, they weren't really kind of au fait with that. I mean, nobody was really in the 1970s. No, 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 no. So I'm not blaming them. It was just a different time. And it was just not really the done thing. It was, you know, much harder to realise a life uh, in your, your your true gender when everybody and society said you can't do that. And gender roles were so restrictive and defined, yeah. then, weren't they? Yeah. And so in that case, were you, when you were presenting as a boy, were you quite, uh, and I say this as one myself, were you a kind of more camp effeminate boy? Not necessarily, no. You know, I mean, there were parts of me 
that were, but I kind of learned to bury those, mm. actually. So I was never... Because um, you were an actor in your DNA. Yeah, yeah, and I never really... No, I mean, maybe it was... Maybe I was just uh, a bit of a butchie. I don't know. <laughs> when you were wanting to play with dolls and things, you weren't called. If any of the kids got a whiff of that, they didn't call you queer. But they didn't it. really. I kept it very. Uh. That was that was at that was at home, and you know, my 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 parents said, you know, you 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 can't do that, and certainly didn't. I I didn't. I didn't do that out in public. So um, you absorbed the message that the things you wanted to do and the person you wanted to be was a dirty secret you had to hide away. Yeah, uh, certainly a difficult secret. Yeah, it wasn't so much that I was chastised or that it was considered dirty per se. It wasn't even that there was a, a certain taboo on it. It was just my parents were just... It was not an understood phenomenon and it was just something that I, th I think they rather I wasn't happening in their family you know but how much could you bury it and hide it I mean did you surely you must have had to dress up as a girl in private when nobody was around I, I did I mean certainly as I um, grew up and I was sort of found myself at home alone for example that was that was then much easier um as a as a going into those difficult teen years as a kid you don't often have those sort of opportunities to 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 do that but certainly when i was um when i was growing up and i was able to sort of uh go to the shops by myself and pick up a few things you know and then borrowing clothes and all, all of the all of those things which i i kind of cringe about now because um i i i don't know it's like any like any sort of struggling person struggling to find their identity you know when you're when you're wrestling with something when you're wrestling with something that is even heteronormative that's hard enough let alone something that's yeah. not you know and something that is con considered slightly taboo or subversive or whatever so it was even more difficult yeah not not an easy time not no, an easy it's, time yeah, i can tell just by the way that you look that it's not easy to remember either yeah yeah and how about so trying to look on more positive memories would i be right in thinking that um youth theater was um kind of an escape for you acting oh god yeah yeah what was it was it being in a safe space for misfits and people who don't conform or was it playing different roles a bit of both a bit of everything certainly when i did national youth theater and i come up to london it, it it was a real sort of we were a hodgepodge of people with different characters and backgrounds and I loved that you know I was mixing with people from all over the UK you don't um, when you grow up in somewhere like the Cotswolds you don't have that diversity no. of it's people are the boys play football the girls do ballet over the church hall and there is there's not the wide range of interests is there that's right that's right so uh, National Youth Theatre was a wonderful opportunity to um, really broaden my horizons, you know, and get to know some really interesting, diverse people, and and have have fun doing the plays and everything. But I did I did plays um, at school as well, and uh, local am amateur dramatic groups and and so on. So yeah, I kind of I certainly enjoyed the escapism that um, that doing plays did. But certainly, National Youth Theatre was an amazing experience. And if anybody listening has any sort of desires to pursue a career in theatre or, or just acting generally I, you could do a lot worse than start off by trying a hand at the uh, the NYT you know it was a wonderful start for me 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about drama school and the acting taking okay. off, but we'll be back in just a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and today I'm delighted to be chatting to Rebecca Root. Rebecca, you were just telling us about joining the National Youth Theatre, how this was an escape and a revelation. Um, tell us about moving to London to go to drama school. Was that the next step in the same journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly couldn't wait to get to London full-time, not only to pursue my ambition of training as an actor, but just having independence, living away from home and being in an exciting and cosmopolitan city as as London is and was. You know, certainly I, I came to London in 1987. Uh, it was a lot grimier and dirtier and smellier and all of those things that we remember and love about London in the 80s. And I, I look back on that time with with great fondness. It wasn't easy. I was still working through my gender dysphoria, but being at, at drama school was a, an amazing place for me to even more explore my gender identity, my sexual orientation, and to sort of kind of get to know myself a little bit better. So you mentioned sexual orientation. I'm getting all these things I want to talk to you about. But before we do that, um, just talking about your gender identity, it's interesting you know, reminiscing on the happy memories. But um, I would love to know how you can be happy when something so fundamental isn't right. I read an interview you did before when you said, when you were presenting as a man at drama school, sometimes you were a bit angry. Was this because something so fundamental wasn't right in your world, do you think now? Yeah, I, you know, when when you have any sort of dysphoria, but gender dysphoria, in, in my instance, you, it's it's not as easily described as just having a splinter in your thumb but you know when you get a splinter and you can't get it out yeah. uh, or it, you start getting out and then it breaks and then you've still got a bit oh, of splinter yeah. and it's sore you know it's constant it's there it's something that's there and it's something that makes your life painful and difficult and it, uh, with a constant reminder now I'm not I'm please I hope people aren't thinking that I'm likening gender dysphoria to having a splinter or a green-grown toenail or an ulcer. I'm not. Uh, and I'm speaking from personal experience. These are simply metaphors to try and give somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. An, an idea of what it might feel like when you just don't feel right in yourself. And you asked me, how could I have had uh, happy times when I was feeling such incongruity with my gender identity and my presentation because life still goes on man and you still have to sort of live your life um, because the alternative is to stop living and unfortunately a lot of people do follow that path and do take their own lives and in yeah. our community that is a uh, oh, or even yeah. today an, an untold tragedy and 30 years ago it it was even more unheard of that being trans and so people just you know they did take their own lives tragically, and I had experience. I, I had moments where I thought the only way out of this is to end my life. So, how did you get through that? How did you pull yourself? I out don't of know. I, I, people, I have friends and family who just kind of pulled me up. You know, people that I met, complete strangers, a, a police officer. For all, I don't know if I can get controversial, but for all the 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 Met's current sort of difficulties that they're going through. Uh, when I had a difficult experience on Hornsey Lane Bridge, it's where I used to live in Highgate, 
you know, I had a couple of moments there and, and somebody stopped and said, are you OK? And they called the police and blah, blah, blah. And there was a sort of one of these liaison people who kind of well, hadn't climbed over the the the, um, the fence, but there was something there which I was in, in a really bad place. But this person, this police officer you know, talked me away and talked me back to my, back to the present. The human spirit is amazing. Is it in other people, in yourself, that somehow it will find a way to keep fighting and keep burning? What's goodness and what's right? And also, you know, so the, in, in a way, the alternative is, is sort of terrifying, really, to think of, you know, what, the the idea of ending one's life, taking one's own life, is is a a, a horrible you know what a, what a terrible thing for for any any person to be in, um, but it's a terrifying prospect. So the alternative is to keep going and to try and make the best of what you have. And I somehow did that, and somehow I I got through, and I found the right people in my life who guided me, and and I found the courage to do to follow that path yeah. rather than take the other path but interestingly you know you had a lot going on because um you also had as you've alluded to your sexual orientation um you are you identify as bisexual am i right well that? i would say i'm more uh probably qu- simply queer really i i'm more in- interested in the 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 person rather than you know what? What everything else is going on? You know. So when you're at drama school, presenting as a man and um, getting to grips with your gender identity, at the same time you um, have a queer sexuality. Mm. Um, was this also adding to your unhappiness? Was it easy to live as a queer man, or was was that just a sideline to your gender identity, or? Uh, I think it probably it it was something of a you know um, not quite a distraction, but I, I've yeah it it, it it was it was something that I I didn't lose too much sleep over in a way. I've had predominantly female partners, so the occasional male partner was never a long uh, relationship or anything. But yes, I certainly kind of explored those possibilities but it never really became as uh overbearingly important as as my gender identity and in terms of your gender identity the moment you decided you were going to transition were you early 30s yeah yeah so what was it that made you think i can't do this anymore i've got to i don't know that really what what why it happened around that time it's nearly 20 years ago now I, I i don't actually know what the the impetus was at that time but i i do remember that i'd got to the point where i had started seeing somebody at charing cross uh gender identity clinic and that in itself was a very slow process i mean fast by today's standards because the waiting list now is something crazy like That's a year or something I'd, uh, more i had to go through various 
gatekeepers, you know, and um, I had to be seen by my GP who had to refer me to such and such, and they had, and they had to see me, and then they had to refer me to Charing Cross, etc., etc. So even that took a number of years, and then I was at Charing Cross. So when people say, sorry, when people say transition, can I just say, partly for myself, but also for our listeners who are all family, but may have some confusion over the process, am I right in thinking you have to live for two years as your chosen gender before you access NHS services. I'm not sure what it is today. I haven't kept up to up to speed with what the process is today, but certainly in my experience, and, and, and I should say, I think in 20 years, the, the, the notion of transition, quote-unquote, has morphed somewhat. It's, I think that the, the, the edges are much more blurred today than they were in the early... 21st century when I transitioned. So when you say when I transitioned what does transition refer to? So transition refers to certainly for me and of course everybody has a different journey if you like and I hate using the word journey but kind of life is a journey so let's face it we're all sort of we're all on a journey journey. (laughs) but the the, the thing is that um, for some trans people they wish to have the body that matches their gender identity okay and that is a sense of transitioning from one physicality to another but not every trans person certainly today not every trans person undergoes any sort of surgical intervention or even hormonal therapies but back in the day it was much more usual well they used to talk about transsexual yes exactly born in the wrong body yeah all that kind of stuff and that's a way in a way that 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 sort of terminology dated though it is still kind of served a purpose as a kind of a, a scaffolding for our understanding of what gender identity is but of course today instead of it being scaffolding it's much more bouncy it's like being in a bouncy castle i've just created a brilliant analogy haven't i <laughs> so from the sort of the, tw- the, uh, the 20th century idea of gender identity which is rigid and scaffolded and hemmed in and you could go from one side of the scaffolding or one level to another level or another side now, and I'm not diminishing the non-binary or gender non-conforming experience, I think people can be more fluid in their presentations. And that's why I think today, you know, it, it's less... There are more options for people today, I believe. As I say, at my time, you you really weren't given the sort of the, the non-conforming or the non-binary blurring. It was black, really black or white. Well, we're talking about transitioning. Could you just tell me at what point were you legally recognised as a woman and how did that feel to get there? So I changed my name on the 3rd of June 2003 and I remember Woo! at the time it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon so it was 3 on the 3rd of the 6th 03 there was lots of 3s and 6s okay and I just remember thinking great numbers it was a good and I just I, I, I changed changed my name by statutory declaration and I um, I had this this solicitor's uh, signed acknowledgement saying that I took to my bank my, I sent off to get my passport changed and at that point legally i i i had uh, female uh, pronouns and name and and everything so yeah 2003 19 years ago fantastic on that positive note we're going to have a quick break matt kane meets virgin radio pride 
This is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and I am chuffed to bits to be chatting to Rebecca Roots. We are actually, what's great is we're having a very positive conversation about transitioning. It's easy to slip into the trauma and how difficult it is. So we were just before the break talking about how you felt when you legally changed your gender. Are there, I don't want to be superficial here, but are there any points, any stages of the process um, whether it's choosing your new style and your name and um, it's a possibility of kind of reinvention. Is any of it fun? Um, yeah, I think, I yes, I, th- I think it is fun. There's an enormous sense of liberation, an enormous weight off your shoulders. And I, I, I often say to people that actually the hardest part of transition is making the decision to just go for it it's making that decision because we could otherwise spend our lives humming up the pros and cons and saying oh i don't know shall i do it can i do it yes i can do it oh no but what about you know what if what if so and i had spent a number of years really going around in circles wondering whether i could you know, at, at risk was my acting career. As such, it was. I was only a jobbing actor. I wasn't especially working a great deal. But nevertheless, I still thought, well, you know, what if I never work again as an actor? I always came back to the idea of, well, what is life for? It's to be happy. What's the meaning of, of everything? And it was really to feel that I, I really had no, I had no choice, yeah, really. Because yeah. as I said before, I, I think I was just very close to very close to ending things really because it was it was the 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 hardest the hardest life was my inauthentic yeah. pre-transitional life and then the after after it everything just got just got easier so how was it coming out to your family as a trans woman had you already come out as queer in terms of your sexual orientation mm, or? not no because again i don't think i would have used the term queer i probably did use the term bisexual back in the 80s and 90s um i didn't really it wasn't really a conversation i had with my parents my older sister she did know about my gender identity crises she did know i had had male partners and she was like super cool she still is she's an amazing woman you know she's always my champion uh, my younger sister as i said before is 8 years my junior she's she, she was a kid as she's grown up she's become incredibly supportive as well through all of the thick and thin that i've been through T- telling my mum and dad was a profoundly emotional experience um they they used to have a little co- cottage in brittany and one summer um it was the summer before i sort of changed my name but that's some 2002 so that's 20 years ago in August, I was over there and I told them of my intention to pursue transition. And they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever we can to help you and to support you. Thank you for telling us and thank you for trusting us with this. You know, oh, so um, you can't ask for anything better. No, exactly. That. Exactly. Um, I was very, very lucky that they were so empathetic and, and supportive. And you mentioned you were worried about your acting career, but presumably you were a better actor as a woman and as a happy woman, somebody in tune with their own authentic self. Yeah, exactly. So I wasn't having to sort of double double act, you know, double layer acting, if there is such a term. But do you know what I mean? You're sort of covering something up and then covering up as a, as in the role that you're playing. Well, yeah, and not to want to contradict what I've just said, but having mm. acted all your life 
once you've accepted your authentic self, is that experience of having had to pretend to be somebody else, does that feed into your craft at all? Yeah, I think it makes you a, a, a more sensitive and more nuanced performer. And certainly when you're more in touch with your own emotional qualities and your own your own sense of self, then you can better explore you you have a sort of a greater freedom or range to explore other other manifestations of the human experience. So it did get easier, but I mean, I, I think I've become a better actor because I've I've been practicing a lot more because mm. of my career has changed. So I'm I'm fortunate, very very fortunate in that respect. That the more I work, I think hopefully fingers crossed, the better I get. And certainly, yeah, I think I think. That is fair to say that as uh, when you do finally say, okay, this is who I am, everything becomes easier. So everything that you do, not whether it's your job or your social interactions or professional work, it, it's life just gets that bit easier. That's not to say that work was easier to find because roles, as I'm sure we'll talk about, certainly 15, 20 years ago, there were no trans roles. Well, I'd love to ask actors. about that, actually. So so you've just transitioned. You're now a better actor, but there must have been <laughs> resistance within the industry. Yeah, there, there were no jobs. I mean, the, the sort of the jobs that were going, and I, once a year, if I was lucky, was, you know, always playing trans people and usually the wrong end of a joke or the wrong end of a fist or, you know, the, the, the wrong end of an abusive relationship. There's no right end of an, any of those no, things, yeah, of course. Yeah, so just when you're celebrating who you are, finally, you get this force acting against your blossoming. Yeah, and of course, you know, it, it's a sad fact that there are, I mean, things are changing slowly, but certainly back in the day, there were far, far, far fewer. The, the gender uh, parity was terribly imbalanced between male, female. That's just sort of the binary male and yeah, female yeah, yeah. parts. Far fewer female parts than, than male parts. And of the female parts, very few were trans, you know, less than 1%. So, I, bet, I bet that would be at a push. Anywhere near yeah, 1%. Yeah. I mean, it must have been about 0.01%. Yeah. So, so what, what I eventually decided to do was to do my MA in voice studies at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, uh, and I trained as a voice teacher, which you may know that I also work as a... Uh, I haven't worked much recently, but until the last few years, I was working in drama schools and with private clients, business people, public speakers, etc., but mostly with drama students at drama schools working on their voice yeah. as the backup option. And I, I, I did that in the, uh, the noughties when I realised that there was no work as an actor, really. But then along came <laughs> Boy Meets Girl, which I absolutely loved. Mm. The second series even more than the first. Thank you. And you were brilliant in it. Thank you. And it was the first mainstream UK sitcom to cast a trans actor in a trans role. It was such a watershed moment. Yeah. How did you feel when you got the part? You must have been like, after going through all that, you must have yeah. just, I can't believe this. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, the, the whole the whole sort of reception to Boy Meets Girl, and it still continues, Still, pe people still um, occasionally stop me in the street and say, oh, I loved your show, when is it coming back? Because well, they, they don't realise it. it we, we didn't get a third se season. But, you know, the, the, the process of that coming to fruition, it started as a, a sort of a table read for an invited audience because the script won a competition, a script writing competition. 
and uh, that was in something like 2013. Then I had to re-audition for the pilot, and then uh, after the pilot, I, I think they gave me the job, but that was 2014. Then we filmed the first season in 2015. So, I mean, it's almost it's 10 years yeah, since yeah. the kind of the, the genesis of the whole the whole project began. But then to get the part and for, to, to film it and for it to go out in 2015 changed the landscape of, mm. I think... The, the trans community on TV in this country, if not internationally, it absolutely it certainly did. changed my life, turned my career skyrocketed. There was a moment around then, 2015, 2016, when we thought there was going to be, it was all going to be roses for trans people and we turned a corner and public, the swell of public opinion seemed to be so much more welcoming and positive. Yeah. And Boy Meets Girl was right at the forefront of that. So how did that feel for you? to be, once you'd gone through this difficult period to get it on screen, to get such a rapturous reception. Oh, it was incredible, Matt. I mean, and I think that was probably where we first met, you know, sort of around the time of uh, that first season. How we met was, I saw you on the underground, I saw you on the tube, <laughs> and those people you said go up to you and said, I love your show. I went up to you and said, I love your show, I think you're amazing in it. <laughs> and that's how we met. Oh, anyway, uh, sorry, your delight, you were telling Yeah, us. I mean, it was just an, an amazing, there was a real bubble, you know, it, it kind of, it began probably 2014 with the Laverne Cox in the States and Orange is the New Black. I mean, when we, when the, the this, that period is sort of written down in the history books of the the, the trans uh, experience. I mean, they they will talk about Laverne Cox. They will talk about people who went before Laverne, and they'll talk about people who came after me. Um, but we were sort of around that time, as you say. There was this wonderful bubble uh, for for the community, which felt, uh, you know, really it was very. It was kind of difficult to keep your, your feet on the ground. But I I think I succeeded. Uh, I hope I've succeeded keeping my feet re relatively on the ground. Right, we're going to have I'm going to have to stop you there. We're going to have to have a quick break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane. You're listening to me chat to the delightful Rebecca Root. Rebecca, we've been talking about Boy Meets Girl. I hope it was a big hit and how it changed everything for trans representation on telly, but also in the mainstream media, but also for your career. And since then, you have gone from job to job. I would love to know what you look for in a role. What what attracts you about a role? What's your criteria? Well, uh, let's see. I mean, I don't just play trans roles. That's the first thing. So the, the, the part, I mean, whether the character is trans non-trans or just it's, it's irrelevant I, I i always want the character to be strong i want them to be somehow conflicted i want them to you know, not necessarily sort of uh, they don't necessarily have to be a a, a goodie, as it were. I've played my number of baddies. About that's um, fun playing a baddie. It is rather fun <laughs> playing a baddie. Yeah, um, I played a, a baddie in the Sisters Brothers opposite um, Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, and you know my my character sort of gets her comeuppance. But that was you know a great a great experience. So I I I love the 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 parts that have 
the edge or have some kind of well no actor wants to play a 2d sort of character you know and you mentioned that you play trans roles cis roles roles where it's not mentioned where do you stand in the debate around um sorry i'm sure you get asked this all the time about should it always be trans people playing trans roles or does it depend on how good the actor is or is there something more fundamental at stake you know, I think that today it would be you'd be very hard pushed to cast a cis person in a trans role. I think, you know, ten years ago it was that that was more common to see cis actors playing trans roles in the same way that it is for people straight and gay, straight and gay, differently abled, etc. Thinking about say the Danish girl, which obviously you were in, Eddie Redmayne played. He's a cis man. He played mm-hmm. a trans woman. But that was quite. That was before things changed. Do you yeah. think that was just a matter of time, or or even then, were you thinking this should be a trans person in this role? Well, I mean, would the film have got made? I don't think the, the film wouldn't have been made if Eddie hadn't been in it. They'd been trying to make that film for fifteen years before Eddie was attached. You know that that's just the sort of the sheer economies yeah, of yeah, filmmaking. Yeah. But even Eddie has said even recently that if he were approached to play that part now he wouldn't he wouldn't play it and i i think that's that's um commendable really i think at the time i supported his casting simply because i feel it was a story that needed to be told and i thought he gave a um a very sensitive performance but, but do you think that now it's right that the pressure is for trans people to play trans roles. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's it would be inexcusable in today's society to have a cis person playing a trans role. Yeah, there's no excuse for it. There are enough trans actors out there, and there are greater as uh, greater access to training for trans and non-gender conforming people so that they're coming up through the ranks as well so they'll be coming up in the next 10-15 years behind the likes of me um, to take to, to take those those parts as they should always have been. I'm loving this strident political voice <laughs> you're now expressing. So it brings me on to your trans campaigning, your activism. You've become a prominent activist actually just by being so visible. Yeah. First of all, what do you think about? So we were saying there was this bubble around the time of Boy Meets Girl. We all think, we all thought the tide had turned and things were going to get better. What's going on now? What do you think about all this hate and misinformation that's currently coming from some sections of the media? How can we defeat it? it I I don't know what the answer is. I, I I wish I knew. I feel that society's perception and understanding of being trans has been slightly I, I think i think people are accustomed societies are accustomed to that scaffolding i mentioned earlier right they're accustomed to black and white the 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 the, the left and the right the straight and the the gay the trans and the cis when when people express different qualities or, or nuances or fluidities along the spectrum of gender identities i think that's when cis people get their heads scrambled and they get their knickers in a twist and i think that's where this has come i'm not laying the blame at the 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 non-binary community at all please don't think i am i think this is why we're getting the sort of the 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 attacks that we get because they 
the, am I allowed to say TERFs? Can we just say for listeners who don't know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists? Yeah, so people who believe that gender is strictly male-female, etc., and you, you, you can't... You can't change. They worry about soul sex spaces for females. Um, well, people they... are obsessed about toilets, yeah. aren't they? Whereas we've actually had, if you think about disabled loos, we've had unisex toilets for, yeah. for ages. Why is it any different? I know, exactly. And in fact, you know, I actually feel a lot safer in a cubicle than I ever did standing at a u- yeah. urinal. And then I never, I never enjoyed standing at a urinal. I don't really like standing at a urinal. <laughs> but um, but can, I, can I say one other thing, rather than going on about urinals? One of the things people get their knickers in a twist about is often the age at which transitioning can happen. You transitioned in your 30s, as we said. What do you say to these people questioning the age at which gender reassignment treatments is available because presumably you would have been happier earlier of course if you'd transitioned earlier of course but that's not to say that i would necessarily have been strong enough or have known that it, known it to be right at that time but if there'd been better representation quite you... possibly yes yes quite possibly but i think i mean you know when we talk about uh, gender confirmation surgeries or treatments you can have blockers, well, certainly you used to be able to have blockers sub-16, but they can be changed and regular puberty can, can resume if, if uh, transition isn't an option uh, as that child reaches maturity. But, you know, I, I don't know any surgeon who's going to actually perform surgery on somebody below the age of 18 in today's climate. And I, I think that expressions and living in your authentic gender, I think, is a, a, a wonderfully valuable thing to to do. And if people listening have a child who is sort of expressing gender dysphoria and you're trying to navigate a pathway for that person to live comfortably in their own skin, I would say let them wear dresses, let them cut their hair, grow their hair, wear makeup, whatever. Some, anything that helps them feel comfortable within their own skin. That doesn't necessarily need drugs for that. You don't, And you certainly don't need a surgeon's blade. So, you know, those sort of decisions can come later and you know I think even now looking back I think I was young I was lucky I still think I was young in my 30s to transition and the thing is is that you know some people transition in their 50s 60s 70s and when I was working with private clients who were trans I I had uh, one client in her 80s who was just beginning her transition you know and she'd, she'd lived her whole life dying for society to catch up and I think you know she actually cited Boy Meets Girl as being the impetus for that she said I saw you on TV and I thought well that, that's me that's my story that's you know that must have felt amazing yeah it was you. incredible so what would you say my final question because unfortunately I'm devastated we need to wrap up and I, I feel like we're only just it. getting think, going oh my god I know let's go to the pub <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to someone listen anyone listening who deep down knows that they're in the wrong gender but they're too frightened to transition I mean I can understand why they're frightened with all this going on that we've been talking about but what would you say to them well I would say don't be have faith personally speaking that you know that 
there was nothing worse than not being able to transition. So the, the it was always going to be a positive step to, to embark on that. Now, I know that by transitioning, you're making yourself visible because trans people are visible, usually 90% of the time. And that is a difficult thing. But is it is it is it harder? Is it better to be visible and true to yourself than be invisible and living in hell? You know, do you want to sort of live uncomfortably and and just just carry on with nobody paying you any never mind but uh, or, or just sort of being true to yourself and just saying i'm going to live my life you and know? you're living proof that it gets better and that happiness yeah. can only start yes exactly exactly fantastic rebecca root thank you thank very you. much thank you matt it's been so lovely to be here with you thank you matt kane meets virgin radio pride Right, that's about it for this week. Thank you very much to my guest, Rebecca Root. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or have something you want to say. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Kane Writer. And please do use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. Matt Kane Meets will be back next week. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney+. Plus. Full of stories and love for all.